This is Jacobin Radio, and I'm Susie Wiseman. Gary Blasey, longtime housing activist, advocate for the homeless, UCLA law professor and poverty lawyer, joins us to discuss the double-digit increase in homelessness in L.A. County and city, indeed, around the country. The numbers, while staggering, only highlight what is visible on streets in every neighborhood. But there are misconceptions about what's driving this surge in people living on the streets. Put simply, says Gary Blasey, homeless people are homeless because they cannot afford housing, mostly in neighborhoods where they have grown up and lived. We get Gary's analysis of the scope of homelessness, the effectiveness or lack thereof of the city, county, and state measures to deal with it, and we'll get Gary's ideas about what more can be done. We then talked to author and activist Paul Buell, whose latest book is a graphic biography of the American socialist and labor leader Eugene V. Debs, one of the most important Americans of the 20th century, according to Bernie Sanders, who also called Debs the most effective and popular leader that the American working class has ever had. We talked to Paul about Debs' life, ideas, and struggles as a fighting union leader of the Pullman Railroad strike, Socialist Party leader who was jailed for opposing World War I, and ran for president from prison, winning over a million votes. All this in just a moment on Jacobin Radio. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. And we're going to be talking about homelessness today with Gary Blasey. The latest annual report on homelessness in California and especially L.A. County shows that homelessness grew 16 percent in the city, 12 percent in the county to almost 60,000 people, out of which, according to the Los Angeles Times, 75 percent live out of doors. That combined with Horrific reports of illegal dumping of garbage that's taking place has created living conditions that are intolerable and unhealthy for so many, while the political response from local, state, and national government has been, what should we say, insufficient, ineffective, too often punitive. But economic inequality, the inaccessible cost of housing, and rising poverty, as well as the long-term effects of gutting the safety net, and more are factors. But we now see generation priced out, meaning generation left out. So to untangle this mess, Gary Blasey is going to join us. He is a professor of law emeritus at the UCLA School of Law, was a poverty lawyer for 15 years before becoming an academic. He's written lots of articles, and you see often op-eds from him in the LA Times. But he began representing homeless individuals and families in 1983 and has been involved in the issue ever since then and, in fact, has to leave after a while to go do more work on this issue. He also has worked with community groups and organizations dealing with housing and homelessness, including a term as president of the National Coalition for the Homeless. Gary Blasey, welcome to Jacobin Radio. Good to be with you. I'm so glad to have you because this is something that should not be a surprise to anyone who lives in Los Angeles. You just see it in front of your eyes. And it's I guess the difference is that it's not just downtown anymore. It's everywhere under all the freeway underpasses, almost anywhere where there's a piece of grass or dirt, you see a tent sprouting up. So maybe we could just begin by asking how L.A. compares to other American cities when it comes to growing homelessness. Well, Los Angeles is really an outlier. It is so much of a worse problem and a bigger problem and an unattended problem in Los Angeles. The only place that comes close is New York. It has slightly more overall homeless people, 62,000 to 59,000 now in the county. The big difference is that New York City shelters about 95% of its homeless individuals. Los Angeles County has for a very long time been able to shelter only 25%. So L.A. County has 44,000 people living outdoors or in places not meant for people to live. New York City has about 4,000, so one-eleventh of the number that we have. So it's a huge difference. One of the things, of course, that immediately comes to mind is the difference in weather. And so it's really hard to imagine New Yorkers living on the streets when it's, you know, minus 10 degrees or something like that. But I know that all throughout, you know, northern states, there's also homelessness in very cold weather. So it's, as you say, L.A. is an outlier, but other places are not immune to it. But let's talk a little bit about who is homeless and why in Los Angeles and what misconceptions are. One 
one of the things I should just say is, you know, for a moment I was on that, what is, I forgot the name of it, but it's the network in every neighborhood that people can hook into on, on emails and get news about the neighborhood, but it turned so angry, especially on this issue, where surprising to me is just to see that people are angry about homelessness, not angry at government, but angry at the people who are living on the streets. Yeah, unfortunately, that's a common and maybe all too human reaction because they can't see what the politicians are not doing, but they can see the consequences, and the consequences are embodied in in the folks that they see on the street. Actually, the problem is much worse than people can see. There's only about 11,000 people in the county living in tents, 16,000 people in cars, a few of whom are probably noticeable as homeless to most people. Mm. And there's another 16,000 people living in shanties and other places that are not meant for folks. And, you know, I think it's a normal uh, reaction to try to make sense of something. And the easiest way to do that is to blame the people who are, in this case, as in many others, the, the victim of it. But the fact is that other than being extremely poor, homeless folks are just people who've lost their homes. Otherwise, they are a cross-section of people with a lot of racial disparities, which I can come to later. But more than half of the people that are unsheltered and were encountered in January of this year, this was their first time. They had been housed their entire lives until now. It's not a single group of people. They don't have characteristics when people say the homeless that has the unfortunate consequence of sort of objectifying people as as a category, as opposed to human beings that are in a condition. And the number one cause of homelessness in terms of why people are unsheltered and on the street is that they lost a job and they couldn't pay the rent. As simple as that. Right. And there's lots of other things involved, but that's the main cause. And I I just wanted to say, I interviewed Randy Shaw a month or two ago on his new book, Generation Priced Out, which is really about the cost of of housing that has just exploded, especially since the uh, Great Recession. And, you know, at the same time, so many people lost their homes. And that's obviously contributed to it as well as to make the price of housing impossible for young people today who are not earning anywhere near what their education and hopes, you know, would expect. But a lot of Just to go back to those prejudices or to those uh, misconceptions, a lot of people think that these are the mentally ill or veterans, but you're saying it's much broader than that. And, of course, we see families on the street. We see, you know, I regularly see people with brooms trying to clean around their tent or their, or if they're not in a tent, you know, their blankets or duvets on the ground. It's not your usual sort of conception. Maybe you could talk just a little bit more about that and also then just address why people are left to live in these tents on sidewalks. Well, let me say a little bit about things that people tend to believe that are not consistent with the facts. So, for example, most people think somebody living in a tent probably has a mental disability or an addiction to drugs or something like that. The fact is that 71% of people who are unsheltered have neither of those situations. They're neither chronically mentally ill or addicted to anything. Another common misconception is that, that's probably the most common, is that they came to Los Angeles because the weather's good here. You know, you don't freeze to death in Los Angeles. In fact... There's more deaths by hypothermia in Los Angeles than there are in New York because you can die of the cold when it's 40 degrees if you get wet. But the fact is that these are, in fact, Angelinos. More than half the people that were counted in January had lived in L.A. County for more than 10 years. And extremely poor people tend to be less mobile than housed people. I mean, a lot of people came to Los Angeles from somewhere else. But really, poor people haven't always had those options. And even on a finer grain geographical detail, most people become homeless in the exact same community where they were last housed, which, if you think about it, makes a lot of sense. If you lost your home, you, you wouldn't say, well, let me go explore this neighborhood about which I know nothing about. Right. Uh, and, I, and I have no transportation. So these are basically our our neighbors that we haven't maybe noticed before. Wow. And you mentioned then that, you know, these are our neighbors and they live in the areas where they used to be housed, and that makes a lot of sense. 
why is a tent on the sidewalk or under an overpass sometimes the best option for these people? Is this due to, as you mentioned, the lack of available shelters or any other, you know, I guess, option? Well, it's two things. One, just in terms of absolute numbers, there are far too few just shelter beds in shelters. But there are some, and sometimes people say, well, these people are shelter-resistant. They don't want to accept the help that we're offering. But if you take just a moment to try to stand in the shoes of the people that are living in the tents and see the world from their perspective, a lot of those shelters have requirements like the most personal possessions you can bring with you is one cubic feet. That's in the cold weather programs that we have in the wintertime. Or if you have a pet, a dog, or a cat, which may be, in effect, an emotional support animal, in fact, under those conditions, there's no place for that dog or cat. You have to abandon that pet in order to not be abandoned yourself. If you have a relationship with someone of the, actually of any sex, you may be asked, and in fact, almost always, you'll be separated from those folks, either by restrictions against people living together who don't have all the same characteristics or because the assignments are sort of random and you can't basically have a, there's no benefit in being the friend of somebody who's in a shelter. So if you look at all those things, it's actually makes a lot of sense for people to choose living in a tent as opposed to what their actual options are. Not their theoretical options, but their actual options. And then one thing that people don't tend to think about much at all is one of the other things that people lose when they go into the big bureaucratic shelter system is they lose a lot of human connections. And for all the physical and health problems and other really disturbing situations that arise in tent cities that are not provided any sanitation or anything like that. In addition to that, though, you find that people living in in encampments often have sort of a, a street community. They basically have nobody else to rely on, so they tend to rely on each other. And I've represented folks that uh, formed an encampment and then because there were some people living in the encampment who were severely disabled, the other folks took it upon themselves to see that those people brought food. or They went out and got food and brought it to those folks. So they were basically running a social welfare program that was more effective than the, the one that had abandoned them. So I think most of the policy mistakes that we've made over the years have come because we didn't treat people who were homeless as human beings, and we never asked them what their needs were or or why they were doing what they were doing. We just decided, based on our stereotypes, uh, what the answer to those questions were. Well, you just raised so many things, Gary Blasey, and I, I want us to have time to at least touch on a lot of them. But you mentioned insufficient shelters, lack of ability to keep your possessions, animals, and relationships that are formed. And, you know, one of the things that Garcetti has tried to do, and I want to get into what L.A. County and city is doing that's right in responding to the crisis and where they're failing, but uh, they were trying. he was trying to, what, would you call it democratized by having shelters in every area. But are shelters the right answer? Why not just instead of making, you know, the money for shelters, spending the money on shelters, spend the money on housing? And because most people's problems are that they don't have a place to live, not that they want to live in a like a dormitory or barracks kind of situation temporarily. That's one thing. And then the other thing is I want you to address are, you know, the sweeps, where instead of just sweeping the garbage and not and cracking down on the illegal dumping, they take people's possessions over and over again, including important documents that they need, pictures, whatever it is. So, And and this comes down to what you just talked about, Gary Blasey, and that is not asking the people themselves what they need. So maybe you could just comment on some of those things in addressing, you know, the way that the city and county are addressing the problem. We got in this mess in part because no one ever asked people whether what they were after was a shelter bed. People just decided that's what they wanted because that's all we could give them. And frankly, in the short run, we're sort of stuck with that solution, although there's, there are many better ways to provide temporary shelter. We're, we can't really build our way out of the situation in time for many of the folks who are on the street and won't survive until that's happened. So we are going to have to have interim housing, but it has to be something that 
operated in a way that makes it a more reasonable choice that people will have reason to want to leave the tents. And that doesn't have to be, you know, anything fancy. And the place you start is you ask people, you know, what are you, what are you looking for? Or, you know, I, I'm not going to speak for anyone, but typically it involves, you know, the bare minimum and a little privacy. Mm-hmm. So we need to do that. But no, shelter is not a solution. Shelter answers the question, where do I sleep? It's not a, it's not where do I, where do I have a home? Where do I have a base of operation? So you're exactly right about that. You know, the effort to democratize the situation, you know, has basically failed for want of any actual leadership or the use of whatever power the mayor has or anyone in the city council to do what they said they were going to do, which is put 222 spaces in each council district. That's happened in three districts out of 15, I think. Mm. So in the short run, we do have to offer people a better alternative because it's not tenable to have that many people on the street. On the other hand, you can always make things worse, and that's what the police sweeps do. They take a terrible situation, and somehow they manage to make it worse. So people have accumulated things that make it possible for them to survive. Uh, They often lose those things, and as you say, they often lose things that are critical to their being able to access the so-called safety net. They lose their, their documents, things about appointments, lose their medication, and so they may decompensate and, and be in a much worse, worse uh, health state. And the sweeps are conducted in a way that is, again, conducted without ever talking to people in the camps. And when you do that, as, as I and other people have, they will come up with creative suggestions, which is, before you send in the police and the bulldozers, would you mind bringing a dumpster by so yeah. we could get rid of some of this crap? Because, you know, I don't know about, about your house, but if they stopped garbage collection, you know, at my house, it would get pretty messy pretty quick. What about that issue, Gary Blasey? Because it just seems to me, you know, ABC, why not? Well, what is the reason that they don't provide you know, portable toilets, portable showers, and dumpsters. Is that because they think it will encourage homelessness? I mean, what is the rationale I'm talking about, at least in a temporary fix, because you're right, it takes time to construct housing, and then there's all the political obstacles to doing that. But in the meantime, things could be made much better, couldn't they? Absolutely. situation could be made much better just by treating it as the emergency that it is. If you imagine that we had an earthquake and all of a sudden we had 50,000 homeless people who weren't people that the people now think are are homeless, um, don't you think we would do a lot of those things that homeless people have been have been suggesting for a very long time? Of course we would. You know, we would do what happens when there's a hurricane. We would deal with basic situation until something better could evolve. And it hasn't happened just because it doesn't fit into the ordinary way the city operates. There was a deputy mayor, whose name I won't mention, who got so frustrated, she said, well, I will buy trash cans myself. It was 11 trash cans in Skid Row, which at the time had no trash cans. And the Department of Sanitation said, well, you can buy them, but we won't empty them, just because that's not how they do things. So if you had a mayor and a political leadership that were exercising real leadership, that would not be an acceptable answer. And I think it boils down to that, that we have a leadership in the city that has not yet got to the point where they said our response is not acceptable. Instead, they have blamed other folks and said, well, we're, we're doing all we can. And that is a solution to nothing. And it will get us nowhere. What about on the issue, because this is so much about garbage and there's disease now and the diseases even hit City Hall as rats, you know, have now made their way into City Hall. And this, you know, you would think would be a wake up call. But on the issue of dumping, since they have police sweeping homeless encampments, why aren't police watching out, putting police on, you know, in the places where most of the dumping is taking place to monitor the dump and actually impose penalties? Is that something reasonable as part of this entire arsenal of things that could be done? Of course it is. If we had as many police uh, watching the, and these are particular hotspots like in Skid Row or in some of the toy wholesalers and some of the produce market. Uh, not so much the produce market, but the other wholesale areas downtown. Um, a lot of the, the businesses uh, find the, the, the rates of uh, commercial garbage collection so high 
they just put stuff on the street. It's been true in Skid Row for a very long time that by volume, most of the stuff on the street came from the businesses there, not from homeless people. You just can't get that kind of volume. Uh, and if you look at what it is, a lot of it are, are the, the remnants of uh, shipments of various things from China that uh, are now on our street. Mm. So let's talk about, you know, you said we need political leadership, but, you know, one needs to talk about the role of race and racism in this crisis. But I also want to talk about any, you know, because you've been working on this for such a long time, what kind of organization is being done at the grassroots level with homeless people themselves to find a way to press their case? Or is that something that's really, really impossible to do because the population changes so Well, you know, it's very difficult to organize folks based on their hopefully temporary situation. Um, But there are organizations that are doing a really good job of, I think, um, being as democratic and grassroots oriented as possible, like the Los Angeles Community Action Network in sort of representing the voices of people that they talk with every day and not as social workers, uh, but as just fellow human beings. So it is possible to do a much better job than we're doing here. And But part of it, I think, is that there is a sense, I think, even on the, on the left and in the civil rights movement, that this is a different thing. And you, you mentioned race. The fact is that in Los Angeles, County, if all I know about you is that you're white, I can tell you that your odds of being homeless are 1 in 493. If you tell me that you're black and that's all I know, the odds are 1 in 40. Mm. That means you have 12 times the probability of being homeless if you're black uh, in this city. And that fact never has seemed to garner that much attention from the traditional civil rights and racial justice coalitions that have really, I think, as has happened with poverty generally, you know, not risen to the prominence that it deserves. I wonder what, you know, some practical, you know, things that you see that could be done, including making other people in the county much more aware of the problem so that, you know, they too will respond. Well, I think, you know, for starters, people want to see some progress. And those people uh, at the top of that list are the people in the encampments themselves. So I think we need on an urgent basis an effort to develop indoor spaces that are preferable from the point of view of people living in the encampments so that you won't have to clean up the encampment because there won't be anybody there. That's the best solution to cleaning up encampments is give people a better alternative. And that can be done. But here, again, it's been maddening to try to watch people do something. So, for example, we have 4,000 homeless veterans in the county, which is by itself an outrage. And the, the Veterans Administration agreed that its property in in Brentwood could Mm. be used to temporarily house 100 veterans. And the city and the county came up with the money to do that. And that has been on the proverbial drawing boards. And we're talking about what they call a membrane structure, what I call a tent, has been on the drawing boards for months. And this is for people who were in a military that could set up a camp in, in 12 hours. So what would it take? Would it take those very veterans just going there and demanding, you know, the, I guess, materials to set up a camp themselves? Or how do you see let's say, some progress on this issue, since you say that, you know, this is not a population that necessarily has to be passive. It's true, but it's hard when you're just trying to survive. You don't have a lot of surplus energy to do organizing work and political lobbying and that sort of thing. But in the specific case of veterans who are in 10 encampments just outside the fence of the VA, and, for example, one of them figured out how to run a power cable through the fence so that the people there would have access to electricity. He was arrested and threatened with prosecution for the theft of government property, wow. that property being the electrons, I guess, that threw it through that court. So as long as this is the predominant attitude of people in power, things are not going to get any better. And my hope is that people, ordinary folks, particularly people in labor and and progressive people and people concerned about poor people will see this as as, um, something that needs to be on their agenda in a positive way and holding those people in power accountable because the, the victims don't have the capacity to speak as loudly as they would like to. 
I just wanted to say one thing on that, Gary Blasey, and that was during Occupy L.A., in uh, 2011. And since most of the encampment was around City Hall and a lot of nearby homeless people joined in, there seemed to be some kind of a connection. And a lot of the people who were, you know, sleeping out because they were occupying saw themselves as perhaps one paycheck away from being homeless. And it seemed at that point that there was some coming together. I'm just thinking in terms of, you know, connections that could be made that would make the case much more powerful, and I'd like to hear your point of view on that. Well, that, there are some obvious common interests. Uh, you mentioned the young people that can't afford housing. Mm. The rental inflation has been bad, but where it's been worse is single-room bachelor apartments, which is the housing that most homeless people and most young people want. That's gone up by 11% a year for the last five years and by the rules of compound interest. Even a single room is way out of reach of someone who's making a $15 an hour so-called living wage. So there are certain things like uh, a reinvigorated rent control. I mean, putting some limits on the, the amount of profit somebody can make just because there are so many desperate people out there. You know, in an emergency, sometimes you control you control prices, and if this is not an emergency, I don't know what is. Well, I certainly hope that that would be the case. I was thinking the same thing. Why don't they put a rent freeze and, and you know, base the rent on, let's say, square footage or bedrooms or something like that, and just have a heavy hand until people wake up to the crisis, because it seems like there's no solution in sight, and that cities are going to be impossible to live in for all but the very, very wealthy, as we're seeing in San Francisco, and I suppose L.A. is not too far behind. Well, I think that would be a terrible thing for the city. I think we're already seeing that to some extent. I mean, people are leaving and and going to the exurbs, um, out to the Antelope Valley, San Gabriel Valley, and then they're becoming homeless there because they can't afford transportation to get back and forth to work. The San Gabriel Valley had one of the the biggest increases of all the areas of L.A. County in, in homelessness, and I think that's probably because a lot of people who were priced out of the market, thought they could do a little better out there, and then that turned out not to be the safe haven they hoped it might be. We only have 30 seconds left. I have one final question. Do you see public housing as part of a solution here, something that we are no longer committed to in this country? I think public housing, as it was originally envisioned and successfully executed in some places, is absolutely an answer. A lot of people will say, well, there was Cabrini Green, and that was a failure. And I don't think gigantic, least cost buildings are, are good for anybody. But you can do things much more livable and much better for communities uh, to the point where that they're the, um, the best housing on the block. And we already see that with better profit developers. So yeah, absolutely. But of course, the, the public housing was basically funded by the federal government, which abandoned housing decades ago. So this is entirely a market operation at this point. We've run out of time, and I know you have to go, and I want to thank you so much, Gary Blasey, for spending some time with us and offering your insights and some of your solutions. And it all comes down, of course, to politics in the end and something that let's hope we can mobilize enough people to participate in the next period so we can change some of this. But thank you so much, Gary Blasey. And Gary Blasey is an emeritus professor of law at UCLA, and he has been working with community groups and organizations dealing with housing and homelessness, including a term as president of the National Coalition of the Homeless, and has been doing this since 1983. Gary Blasey, thanks so much for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And I'm Susie Wiseman. Don't go away. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Extremely pleased to have Paul Buell with me for the next segment. Paul Buell is now a professor emeritus, I guess you call him, retired from Brown University American Studies. His background is just rich with radical politics, including all the way back to radical America and Students for Democratic Society. He was a founder of the Oral History of the American Left Archive, and he is the co-editor of the Encyclopedia of the American Left, 
and he did a three-book run on the story of the Hollywood blacklist Ds. But today, we're talking to Paul about his newest book, and that's Eugene V. Debs, A Graphic Biography. And we're going to talk about why Debs, why graphic biography. Paul wrote the script with Steve Max and Dave Nance, and the art is by Noah Van, is it Shiver or Skyver? Skyver. 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 Yep. <laughs> that is kind of an unfortunate name in labor history, but nonetheless, maybe British labor history. In any case, this is about Eugene Debs, and let me just say, for those who don't know him, you should. I first started reading Debs' speeches before I considered myself a real radical, and he helped along the way when I was, I think, 14 or 15, because he was an incredible speaker, and he was the leader also of the Pullman Strikes in 1894, one of the founders of the IWW the Industrial Workers of the World, 1905, that magic year, and also a socialist presidential candidate in 1912, and also then, let's call it Woodrow Wilson's most famous political prisoner in 1920, imprisoned for disloyalty or speaking out against the war, World War I, which is ironic because as Paul shows, and we all know, what most distinguished Debs was his moral steadfastness and unbreakable loyalty to the labor movement and the freedoms of thought and speech that the Bill of Rights enshrines as our inalienable rights. Debs ran for president from prison. He got around a million votes and in the novel says he was probably cheated out of many more. And that was unparalleled, I think. Maybe Paul will correct me until the Bernie Sanders candidacy of 2016. Well, there's so much more to say, but I'll let Paul Buell say it. Welcome, first of all, to Jacobin Radio. Thank you very much. So let's just start with why Gene Debs today? What is there about his life and his work that either needs rescue or reclaiming? What lessons to be learned or record to be corrected? Maybe this is the biggest one, although it's difficult to understand. I set out to interview old-time radicals of various kinds, mostly women and men in their 80s. And I came across a guy in Providence, Rhode Island, where I lived, who'd been seven years old on the streets of the Jewish poor section the day after Gene Debs died and the newspapers had appeared. And he said he walked around seeing men and women in tears, Mm. barely able to contain themselves. And then he said to me that in his neighborhood, how many decades later, the day that Martin Luther King was assassinated, he saw the same kind of response that people felt that they had been deprived of something that was a great hope in American life, and even more than American life, but represented something that was so good and so endearing that it helped to lift people up just to be part of it and believe in it. It wasn't just that this was a great person, it's that they did something for them. That certainly is the way millions of people, voters or non-voters, felt about Debs in 1920 and before. I want to just add to that because I started out by telling you my first you know, encounter with Debs, and I think that he's that kind of person and that kind of historical figure that people want to talk about what learning about Debs meant to them. And I remember in a casual conversation with our own Lila Garrett right here at KPFK, she first mentioned to me that her parents knew Eugene Debs and that he came to her house. She was too young to remember it, of course, but that's pretty impressive. And it just, again, you know, adds to that guest standing that Debs had. So let's talk about why he had it. Well, to that, I want to add an anecdote. I set out in the early 80s interviewing these old-timers around the country, and Mike Davis sent me to Fontana. And there in Fontana, I went to the Slovenian old folks' home. (laughs) And there was a 98-year-old woman who had been a hat-maker organizer in Chicago around 1910. And she was laying down in bed, and as was described to me, she had Alzheimer's. So she said a few things that she repeated several times. But the most vivid one was this, from about 1912. Debs held my baby. (laughs) Wow. And she couldn't have been the only one that had that recollection. Right. So that gives you some notion of the stature of Eugene V. Debs. And so let's talk a little bit about 
who he was and what he represented and how he grew to have that stature? Well, there's a number of ways to begin this, but one way is that until Debs in 1900 and after, socialism had been an exotic idea in America. If it existed at all, it existed in these ghetto circumstances of immigrant Jews, even before them, immigrant Germans, back to the 1870s. But if it existed at all in mass form, it was people who read Edward Bellamy's utopian novel, Looking Backward, published 1889. One of the mass bestsellers in the English language world, which portrayed a world beyond class struggle somewhere in the in the 21st century, mm. which all the social problem has been solved. There was no class conflict to bring it about. People just got more intelligent and so forth. So there was that. And Debs drew upon that kind of feeling. He also drew upon Civil War veterans, like my great-great-grandfather, the abolitionist, who regarded themselves as Lincoln's boys and had believed that if slave labor, black labor, could be abolished, then wage labor could also be abolished. That was going to be the last mission of their lives, then grown toward the end. But it's also true that immigrants of many kinds, not every kind by all means, but many kinds, especially the new immigrants of Eastern and Southern Europe, and, and perhaps most especially Jews, but that would leave out Slovenians, Finns, Croatians, Ukrainians, and others who would form little communities within industrial life and had little club, ethnic clubs for protection, uh, death benefits, more or less, death and sickness benefits. For all of them, Debs was the one who brought the idea of socialism into something that would convince ordinary Americans. Now, add to that, Debs's immense popularity among tenant farmers in Oklahoma and parts of Texas these people's idea of socialism is they'd get, they'd get the land they were working on. But all of this was sort of united in the idea that if you could educate ordinary Americans, lower middle class, working class, uh, rural and urban, towards the idea of a better society out of chaotic capitalism, then they would come together and vote, but also organize, and through educating themselves would bring about the, the needed change. It was a great idea. It was as appealing to the small town Kansas teacher's wife, minister, aging railroad worker, and others as it appealed to the immigrant uh, industrial worker. And it seemed for some time, as the votes rode steadily and people were elected to local office, sometimes state office, and occasionally a congressperson, as if it were going to succeed. And then it ran into some formidable obstacles and was turned back. One of the things that you have in the graphic novel is, you know, and because it's a graphic novel, it's a picture, and that is of Debs being given the Communist Manifesto. And you imply, and I guess state in a way, that that was instrumental in forming, in turning him into a socialist, even though he had long been a champion of those, you know, of labor and, as you say, farmers and others. But one of the things I learned from you, Paul Buell, is that the Communist Manifesto first made its appearance in the United States in the Yiddish language in one of these small circles that you've just mentioned. But maybe you could talk just a little bit about, I know it's jumping ahead, but what it was that, you know, that you see that made Debs into a socialism, and then we can move into some of his, what Debsian socialism is, even though we're still going to talk about why graphic novel. Yeah, yeah. It was somewhat intellectual because somebody just come up with a the first of six volumes of Debs's writing here and there, and it's pretty impressive. It, it is things that he was writing for this railroad locomotive fireman's magazine, which he edited and heavily wrote for in the before he became a socialist in the 1880s, are are very astute and very interesting. He was a really smart. Uh, on-the-ball kind of guy and and also was a hell of an organizer, taking trains all around the country and talking to people. So, you know, he read Edward, Edward Bellamy and had some intelligent things to say about them. He what The main thing is that he discerned that the craft unions, the very skilled and very privileged craft unions, like his craft union, locomotive firemen, they had come up against the power of the monopolies. 
and their vision of upward mobility for themselves and America getting better and better and these kind of things, which they really believed in, were not going to happen. His conclusion was that he had to organize all of the railway workers, whether skilled or unskilled, all across the country, or they couldn't possibly win strikes. And then there's a strike at the Pullman factory south of Chicago where the most luxurious railway cars on the planet were produced. I saw one in a British railway museum just a few weeks ago. Every, the, the Queen wanted a, a Pullman car with chandeliers and, and so forth. Well, Pullman, the man, uh, uh, shut the workers out of the factory and, and starved them. And Debs call for a nationwide general strike of railroad workers. And that was the Pullman strike. Half a million workers went on strike for that. It was the biggest accident in, in American history, and it was crushed uh, by President Grover Cleveland and his troops, first time that it happened by national troops, with mm. the collaboration of Samuel Gompers, the conservative head of the American Federation of Labor. So this sort of closed out the idea that capitalism had a happy ending. And Debs migrated through us the last hope that there could be some kind of utopian colonies he would found that would show people a better way. Uh, he evolved toward the idea that only if the political state that existed were challenged and workers had their own governorship over the political state could there be real democracy, real economic democracy in the U.S. It's an evolution. And is it dependent on some some Marx or Engels thing he'd read? Maybe. But I think more of it was his intuition and his personal growth that led to the conclusion that caused him to run for president in 1900. And I really like, Paul Beale, that you accentuate his belief in this broad sort of grassroots democracy because, you know, many of us would say that that's inseparable from socialism and is, you know— in a very strange state under capitalism, but nonetheless, that that was what Eugene V. Debs championed. The other thing about, to tell you something about the person, and you see it here in this book, is that after he was released from jail, when the Cleveland administration, you know, mobilized the cavalry and the courts to destroy the Railway Workers Union, Debs actually personally assumed all the union's debts, even though it took him, you know, know, what, I think at least two decades to repay. And that tells you a lot about him as well. One of the things that, you know, I want to ask you is about why you chose this form, the graphic novel. And also, as you're reading through it, at least to me, it's, it's, it's interesting that the issues that are highlighted are issues that are still pertinent today, very many of them, including the right to organize, race, gender, birth control, immigration, role of immigrant labor, and all the rest of it. So maybe you can talk about both of those in one. Yeah, right. Well, intuitively, he was in our time. He embraced the legacy of John Brown, the great abolitionist, and said that John Brown had created a place for himself in the cosmos. Uh, he uh, attacked racism, including working-class racism. As soon, he always supported women's suffrage, but as soon as Margaret Sanger, that dangerous birth control advocate, uh, announced, for, announced uh, the, some details about what women could do for birth control and was arrested, Debs rushed to her defense. Uh, just as he rushed to attack the U.S. assault upon the Philippines in the 1890s, and the U.S. attack on Mexico, and likewise uh, the U.S. involvement in World War I. He was r- right on the ball with all of those things uh, because of this very, very deep sensibility that he had. Uh, and uh, therefore, in, in so many ways, uh, he's with us today. Uh, I guess it's because I'm from the Midwest and from a, a Protestant family, Debs and Terre Haute, Indiana, not so far from central Illinois, always appealed to me. It always seemed to hold something in the imagination of of middle America that we were looking for in the 1960s. And I now think the Port Huron Statement drafted by Tom Hayden may have been the best uh, key to uh, finding a way to organize young people on campus. I, I know that's what I concluded in 1965. Oh, boy, 
Now we have a way of talking to middle America. Now we have a way of talking to young people on campus. Do you see a debt to Debs in the Port Huron Statement? Well, I like as a number of other people in the Los Angeles, Southern California area who, who knew Tom Hayden much better than me and in later years, I think so. Tom Hayden was allergic to Marxism, but he was very attracted to Eugene Debs. <laughs> well put. <laughs> very well put. Okay, so now, why did you choose to do this as a graphic novel? You might well ask, and I'm very happy you did ask. <laughs> okay. I was a great devotee of Mad Comics when I was a lad, and very much in love with Harvey Kurtzman, the inventor of Mad Comic, and many other things as creating a new form of satire of commercial life. And then 1969, I'm publishing a magazine for Madison, a fairly cerebral magazine for Madison, and I saw the appearance of this new form, the comic, the Radical Comic, and I published one issue called Radical America Comics in 1969, reprinted this year. And then I just became a sort of fan and devotee And then in 2005, the IWW Centenary, the Industrial Workers of the World Centenary, was coming up. So I gathered a bunch of young artists and a bunch of old artists to unite in creating uh, Wobblies. And uh, that was so well-received in a political sense (laughs) that it spurred me to do a whole lot of other work in that direction, including graphic biographies of Isadora Duncan and Emma Goldman and Che and and uh, Rosa Luxemburg very recently and two months ago Herbert Marcuse, all with the same idea. How the heck am I, an aging academic, ex-academic, going to reach people under 30? And, you know, most of the readers, maybe 80% of the readers of graphic novels are under 30. So even though this is a big generational leap for me, at least I can make this effort. And there are plenty of wonderfully talented and terribly underpaid artists around who are uh, eager to uh, do this effort if I can scrape together the, the money and publisher for them. Well, I think it's a wise choice, and it's certainly, you know, in some sense, you're the uh, forerunner of the this new form, but it's very popular today, and I think this is great. And so I'm going to just let the listeners know Paul's latest book, except for some of the ones that he mentioned that are either in the pipeline or have just been published, is Eugene V. Debs, A Graphic Biography, which is published by Verso. And it's great. It's a wonderful read, and you learn a lot about Eugene V. Debs, and we've been talking about him in Debsian Socialism. And also part of what's very good in this is that it, it's clearly written with some or chosen. Some of the things that you choose about Debs have a political purpose in mind, not just to reach people and fill in the blanks on our own history, but to make, you know, I think some of those positions relevant for today. And I wanted to ask you about that as well. And I just wanted to say one further thing that I teach this class in revolutions. And and one of the things that we do, looking in the early part of the 20th century, is the debate between proponents of direct action or the direct deed and those who oppose that and think that it's much more important to do the patient long-term organizing that when the majority of familiar oh yeah and so that never goes out of style but i use eugene debs in it because he has this terrific article on the need for sound revolutionary tactics from 1912 that is a direct response to you know things like uh, kropotkin and the propaganda of the deed in favor of the harder work of organizing so that Mm. the working class itself becomes responsible for its own liberation so. so and he's opposing this idea that you should take a shortcut by yep. an assassination or some other yep. popular action. Yep. And yep. that makes Deb even more, I think, relevant to uh, the present moment. Not that we're seeing left-wing terrorism, on the contrary, but we are you know, seeing the growth of DSA and other movements that are depicting a new form of democracy. So maybe that's you can... R- that's right. Yeah. That's right. And, and to add to that, Debs believed in a culture of socialism. That actually it was cultures plural since it contained many different working class and minority communities which all were drifting in that direction. Harlem from 1915 onward. Uh, Debs encompassed uh, hegemony without using the word. 
and the songs and jokes and humor of various kinds, I'd say music above all for the industrial workers of the world, was a way of finding audiences and teaching them something without hitting them over the head with propaganda. Well put. Now, let me ask you this. You do end, the book ends with my favorite Deb's quote, and I might ask you to read it in a minute, but let's talk for just a moment about whether or not you put Bernie Sanders on the last few pages of this graphic novel, Eugene Debs, a graphic biography. Do you see him as the sort of logical successor of someone like Debs? You know, that's putting it too strongly since nobody can be Debs any more than the greatest African-American leader is likely to be Martin Luther King Jr. Mm. But in the sense that when Debs spoke to America at large, he made the idea of socialism, the word socialism, legitimate. There is a way in which, from 1916 onward, Bernie Sanders, whatever his limitation, made the idea of socialism utterable, the word of socialism utterable, and in doing so did something much bigger than Bernie Sanders. Maybe you can tell our listeners or just uh, speak Deb's words for us. Do you have them in front of you? The S word? Oh, yes. No, no, no. This is his famous famous speech at the trial. Yeah. At the trial, Mm. right. Your Honor, years ago I recognized my kinship with all living beings, and I made up my mind that I was not one bit better than the meanest on earth. I said then, and I say now, that while there is a lower class, I am in it, and while there is a criminal element, I am of it. While there is a soul in prison, I am not free. Every time I hear that, I tear up, and I think you did a little bit, too. And and that should be enough to get the listeners to run out and get this wonderful graphic biography, Eugene B. Debs, that is written by Paul Buell, Steve Max, Dave Nance, and the art is by Noah Van Sciver. Let's just—we have about a minute left, and I want to just ask you— you know, you, you've done a bunch of uh, graphic novels, and I think you probably have a couple more in the pipeline. Maybe you can let yep. us know about that. Yep. Well, I think the one that has the kind of Debsian lump-in-the-throat feeling is one to appear in 15 months, and it's a graphic novel about Paul Robeson. I can play Paul Robeson music to people in their mid-'80s, and they can remember their children taking them to Robeson concerts in the middle-1940s. And, you know, it was like an experience that they can never forget. It comes back to them immediately because Robeson encompassed great, great hopes for a different kind of American society, multiracial and democratic and so forth. So that's the kind of uh, thing that I have in mind and reaching uh, middle America, especially young people, most of all with it. It's what we need to do. And comics are what little I can do towards that end. But I'm eager to do it. Well, thank you so much for doing that, Paul Buell, and for all of your work and for taking the time to be with us today on Jacobin Radio. Congratulations on this latest book. We're going to look forward to all of them. And Paul is a retired professor from Brown University. He was an early SDSer. He, as you mentioned, uh, Paul, did the Radical America, and you did a comic book of it, but that was actually a journal and the oral history of the American left. Countless books, a great book on our union leaders called Taking Care of Business. It's a brilliant book on the history of American labor and so many more. Paul Buell, thanks for being with us today. Thanks so much, Susie. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.